Well, good morning. Welcome to Grace Community Church this morning. If you haven't met me yet, my name is Teresa Breeding. I am the Women's Ministry Director and one of the teaching pastors here at Grace. And this morning we're going to be continuing on in our series in the book of 2 Samuel with a message that I'm calling, Whose Side Are You On? And Hopefully you all decide that by the end of this message today. Uh, but just a little recap before we get started in today's chapter. If you'll remember, uh, David was anointed as the next king of Israel when he was just a boy. And he, the, the present king, King Saul, was very, very jealous of him. So he went on the run from him because King Saul tried to kill him over and over and over again. So he's been on the run for about 15 years. And at this point, Saul has died. So it would seem that it would be time for David to take over the kingship of Israel. However, only one of the 12 tribes of Israel recognizes David as their king, and that was the tribe of Judah. The other 11 recognized Ishbosheth as their king, which Ishbosheth was the last remaining son of Saul. And so there's a battle going on between these two sides, and that's where we pick up in chapter 3 today. So let's look at verse 1. It says, the war between the house of Saul and the house of David lasted a long time. David grew stronger and stronger, while the house of Saul grew weaker and weaker. Sons were born to David in Hebron. His firstborn was Amnon, the son of Ahinoam of Jezreel. His second, Kiliab, the son of Abigail, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. The third, Absalom, the son of Micah, daughter of Talmai, king of Geshur. The fourth, Adonijah, the son of Haggith. The fifth, Shephatiah, the son of Abital. And the sixth, Ithream, the son of David's wife, Eglah. They were born to, to David in Hebron. So you read this list, and it sounds really complicated, right? Because you don't know if I pronounce those names right or not. I don't know if I pronounce those names right. Tomato, tomato, right? Because that's not really the complicated part. The complicated part is if you notice, he has six sons by six wives. That's complicated. And uh, so there are a lot of people that use this to support polygamy. But we know that that's not the case because we know that that is a violation of God's heart for marriage that he revealed to us back in Genesis chapter 2, the very first time he talked about marriage, that it was for one man and one woman to come together as one. The two become one. Not the, the six and the one and the seven. I don't know. Not that. And so, so we know that this is against, against God's plan. And now granted, it was common for men to have more than one wife during this time. Uh, it was almost seen as like a status symbol of how great he was if he had more wives. But we also know that just because everybody else is doing it, that doesn't make it okay, right? Just because David is doing it, that doesn't make it okay. There are things common in our world today, but that doesn't make them okay. It's like my daddy always said, you know, if everybody's going to jump off a bridge, are you going to jump off it too? I'd say, well, no. But that doesn't work quite as well with this generation. I tried that on my daughter, my 16-year-old, Brianna. And she goes, well, it depends. How high is the bridge? How deep is the water? 
is there a bungee cord? And I was like, okay, forget it. <laughs> I was like, just, just jump off the bridge, it's okay. But, uh, but you get the point. Just because David did it, it doesn't make it okay. And we've also, we've done a study of the book of Deuteronomy. You know, we look back, now that we're in, in these chapters, we're seeing why it was necessary for us to study Numbers and Deuteronomy and Leviticus, because it's all coming into play in these chapters. And we see in Deuteronomy 17, 17, that it says that a king should not have many wives. And the reason for that was because a lot of kings, they would have wives from other countries, from other kingdoms, because it would create like an alliance with that kingdom. And these wives would come in, they would be from other cultures, they would worship other gods, they would bring those that, that worship and those idols into their marriage, and then that would get mixed up with the worship of our God, and it would all get mashed in together and all get confused, and it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a good thing, and we don't need another verse really to tell us that it's not a good thing for David to have many wives, for him to have six wives. Actually, he ends up having more than six wives. Uh, he adds some later on. He'll add one before the end of this chapter, actually, and uh, we can see that there's, there's problems with that. David did not obey God's, God's plan for marriage, but God still used him. God still blessed him. Uh, but we'll see that there's some problems with that. We see his six sons, there, there was problems among them. One of them killed his own, his own brother. One of them raped his own sister. One of them tried to kill David. One of them tried to overthrow David and take over his throne. There were problems. There were lots of problems. And as we continue in the book of 2 Samuel and over into 1 Kings, we'll see those problems as they, as they play out. Not to mention that it set a bad example for his children. You know, parents, our children are watching everything that we do. And they're taking note, whether we notice it or not. And they are likely to do the same things that we do to the next level. Okay? It's like we see Solomon later on. Solomon followed in his father's footsteps. He had over a thousand wives and concubines. <laughs> Can you imagine? I don't have to tell you that's a problem, right? I mean, he probably didn't even know half their names. And guys, if you've ever called your wife by the wrong name, that's a problem. That's a problem. Roger did that one time. One time. <laughs> No, actually, he did it several times when we were first dating. And I didn't find it funny, not even the first time, not at all, ever, did I find that funny. But, uh, but you know, that doesn't go well. <laughs> but you can watch as we go through the book of 2 Samuel and over into 1 Kings, and you'll see how all of this plays out. And David, although he's still blessed by God, he's still used by God, he will have to suffer the consequences of the choices that he makes because that's, that's how sin is. But this morning, we're actually going to shift our focus over to a guy named Abner. If you look in verse 6, it says, During the war between the house of Saul and the house of David, Abner had been strengthening his own position in the house of Saul. Now, Abner's been around for a while. I don't know if you remember him or not. He was the chief commander of, of Saul's army. And so he was very high-ranking in Saul's army. He's the one who, after David's victory over Goliath, he's the one that took David to meet Saul. 
He is the one that's always seated next to Saul at the banquets. He's the one that camps next to Saul when they're camping because he's guarding Saul. He's Saul's right-hand man. He's also the classic make-it-happen guy. If you need to make something happen, if you need something to get done, you just call on Abner and he will get it done. And so when Saul died, it was under the direction of Abner that Ishbosheth became king. He was the one that led everyone to follow Ishbosheth because it was in his best interest. Because he had been so close to Saul, he had been right there beside Saul the whole time, so he had the knowledge and the wisdom of how to run the kingdom. So Ishbosheth would lean on him for that. So, you know, technically, he's just behind the scenes pulling all the strings, ruling the kingdom. And so he wanted Ishbosheth to be king. And that was all great and good until the Ritzbah incident. In verse 7. Now Saul had a concubine named Ritzbah, daughter of Ai, and Ishbosheth said to Abner, Why did you sleep with my father's concubine? Because, see, when a king died, his kingdom would transfer to the next king. And so it was, it was his, his kingship, it was his responsibilities, it was his properties, it was his donkeys, it was his concubines. All got shifted over to the next king. And so Ishbosheth is the next king. A concubine was like a wife but not. And she was like a, a second-class citizen. She um, was basically just a baby mama. But she, she, was, she was a possession of the king. She was taken care of. She belonged to the king. And the king is now Ishbosheth. So he confronts Abner and he accuses Abner of sleeping with Ishbosheth. Not that he really cared, probably didn't even know her name. Uh, not that he really cared, but it was the principle of the matter. Because to sleep with a king's concubine was first of all, very disrespectful, but it was also like an advancement on the kingdom, like claiming the kingdom. And so it was a very bold move on Abner's part. And so Ishbosheth's not happy about it, so he confronts Abner. And Abner says, I did not have sexual relations with that woman. <laughs> oh, wait, no, sorry, that was somebody else. No. No, sorry, that Abner, <laughs> Abner, he neither confirms nor denies whether he slept with the concubine. <laughs> but uh, he just goes into defense mode. Verse 8, Abner was very angry because of what Ishbosheth said. So he answered, am I a dog's head on Judah's side? This very day I am loyal to the house of your father Saul and to his family and friends. I haven't handed you over to David, yet now you accuse me of an offense involving this woman? May God deal with Abner, be it ever so severely, if I do not do for David what the Lord promised him on oath, and transfer the kingdom from the house of Saul, and establish David's throne over Israel and Judah from Dan to Beersheba. So instead of saying he didn't do it, he just goes straight into defense mode. Like, how dare you? How dare you accuse me? Like, I have been beside you. I have, I have been loyal to your family. I didn't turn you over to Saul. I could have turned you over to Saul. I didn't. And now you're going to accuse me of sleeping with this woman? Well, forget it then. I'm, I'm not going to follow you anymore. I'm going to endorse David. I'm going to make sure that David, God said that David would be the anointed king of, of Israel. So now I'm going to make it happen. 
is that's how cocky he is. He knew all along, Abner knew all along that David was the anointed one, that David was supposed to be the king of Israel. Yet he endorsed Ishbosheth and supported him. Why? Like, why would he be on the wrong side this whole time? He knew it to be true. He knew that David was the next one, but he chose not to follow him because he was comfortable, because he was in a high position. He was the chief commander. He was in a high position. He didn't want to make a change. And I think that we can relate to this because I think that there are people in this room today or people watching online today that you know, you know that this Bible is true. You know that God is real. Yet you're so comfortable in your life. You're so comfortable following the world that you don't want to make the change. Because if you did, then that, that might mean that you had to change some things that you didn't want to change. Some things like maybe you have to change a relationship. Maybe you have to stop hanging out with some people or stop hanging out in some places that you just, you don't want to change. And so you don't. And so see, that's what Abner did. But let me tell you this morning that by not choosing to follow Jesus, you're choosing not to follow Jesus. Let me say that again. By not choosing to follow Jesus, you are choosing not to follow Jesus. That's a big deal. Abner knew that David was the anointed king of God, but he chose not to follow God's plan because he was comfortable where he was at. He was comfortable where he's at. He didn't think there was a position for him in David's army because David already had a commander-in-chief. He had Joab. We'll learn a little bit more about him in just a few minutes. But, but Abner, knowing he was on the wrong side, knowing he was against God, remained loyal to the wrong thing until now. Now he's turning around. Now he's switching sides. So now he's going to be on the right side, but for the wrong reason. For the wrong reason. It's not because he wants to follow David. It's because he's mad at Ishbosheth. So Abner tells Ishbosheth he's switching sides. Verse 11, Ishbosheth did not dare to say another word to Abner because he was afraid of him. Probably took every ounce of nerve that he had just to confront him in the first place because Abner was the one that held all the power. Verse 12, then Abner sent messengers on his behalf to say to David, whose land is it? Make an agreement with me and I will help, bring, help you bring all Israel over to you. So he's very cocky. But apparently... He is able to do this, and David believes that he's able to do this because David agrees to make an agreement with him on the condition that he brings his ex-wife, McCall, back to him. Remember, McCall was Saul's daughter that he used to be married to. And so he asks for McCall to be brought back to him. I don't think out of love. I think out of position. I think maybe he thought that if he was Saul's son-in-law again, it would give him more credibility and gain him some more followers. So Ishbosheth gave orders and had her taken away from her husband, Paltiel, son of Laish. Her husband, however, went with her, weeping behind her, all the way to Behurim. Then Abner said to him, go back home. So he went back. I was like, poor guy, he's his wife's been taken away from him. He is so devastated. He's following behind her, crying, but there's nothing he can do about it. 
You know, if the king wants your wife, the king gets your wife. Okay, it'd be like, you know, guys, what if Joe Biden wanted your wife? Okay, all right, too far? Okay. Anyway, you get the point. You get the point. Verse, y'all are discussing that now. Verse 17. Abner conferred with the elders of Israel and said, For some time you have wanted to make David your king. Now do it. For the Lord promised David, By my servant David, I will rescue my people, Israel, from the hand of the Philistines and from the hand of all their enemies. For some time you have wanted to make David your king. They wanted to make David their king. And Abner's basically saying here, you wanted to make him king, and the only reason he's not king is essentially because Abner convinced them to follow Ishbosheth. But they wanted him to be king. And, and Abner knew the whole time that David was the anointed one and that he was directing these people to be in direct opposition from the will of God. He was leading these people outside of the will of God, outside of the blessings of God. It's, it amazes me how much, how much influence one person can have. But the sad thing is that it says that they wanted David to be king because they knew, they knew, not just Abner, the people knew that David was the anointed king. Yet they still did not follow him. The people knew. They had knowledge. They had desire. But they didn't make him their king. Because knowledge and desire are not enough. You can know that God is real. And and you can have a desire to follow him. But you will not know the blessing of following God until you actually follow God. I mean, action is required. And there are people in this room today that you have the knowledge and you have the desire, but you haven't taken that action step. You haven't surrendered your life to him. It's like you think about it, but you haven't done it. And like Abner said, just do it. Just do it. Make him your king. Do it today. It's time to move forward. Verse 19. Abner also spoke to the Benjamites in person. Okay, so he went to the elders of the, all the other tribes, and he talked to them, and then the elders went back and talked to their people. But he personally talked to all the Benjamites because Saul was from the tribe of Benjamin. So this would be the most difficult tribe to convince to follow David. But apparently he's very persuasive because he did. He got them all to follow David. And it says that he went and he told David that all the 11 tribes were on board. They're ready to follow him. And David threw this big feast for him. Verse 21, Then Abner said to David, Let me go at once and assemble all Israel for my lord the king, so that they may make a covenant with you, and that you may rule over all that your heart desires. So David sent Abner away, and he went in peace, so that you may rule over all that your heart desires. Does that have a familiar ring to you? Remember when Jesus was tempted in the desert by Satan. And Satan said, or again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give to you, he said, if you bow down and worship me. Jesus 
was, he was the future king. He was the anointed son of God. He already owned all those kingdoms. He didn't need the devil to give him what, the, what God had already given him, what God had already declared was going to be his. David is the anointed king. God said that he's going to be king over all of Israel, and he will be. He doesn't need Abner to, to give him what the Lord has already declared as his. Be very leery of any person that promises you that they can give you what only God can give. Because that person will expect to become the God in your life. But the temptation comes in with wanting to speed up God's plan. Because God's ways are not our ways. God's timing is not our timing. I mean, my goodness, David has waited 15 years for the kingship. And so the temptation has to be there. It has to be there. But David has been patient. He's been very patient, waiting on the Lord. He wasn't going to go to the people and say, you know, you have to follow me. You have to submit to me. He wasn't going to demand that from them. He wanted them to choose him as their king. He wanted them to ask him to be their king. Does that sound familiar to you? Jesus says, I stand at the door and knock. We have to choose to open that door to him. You know, some of us, we open the door and we just let him right inside the door. We don't let him all the way in. You know, we, we let him in the kitchen where he can bless the food. But not in the living room where the TV and the internet is. Not in the bedroom. You know, we, we let him in the kitchen where he can bless our spaghetti. But he can't tell us he can't go in the living room and tell us what to watch on TV or what to look at on the internet or go in our bedroom and tell us who we can or cannot sleep with. We just crack the door and let him in just a little bit. And he wants us to swing that door wide open and let him all the way in to everything, to every part of our life. So I want you to think about this this morning. Is there a door that you're not letting him in? Is there a room in your house that he's not allowed in, a part of your life that he's not Lord over? Because he's calling us to a higher level. He's calling us to step it up a notch. All of us, every one of us. And so I challenge you to do that this morning, which means that you're either going to start doing something that draws you closer to God, or you're going to stop doing something that draws you away from God. Or that hurts your witness with God. You know, maybe that means that you need to, to reconsider a relationship. Maybe that means that you need to set boundaries on what TV shows you watch or what, what you look at online. Maybe it means you need to put a guard on your mouth. Maybe you struggle with cussing. Maybe you struggle with gossip. Maybe you struggle with negativity. Hey, I'm, I'm stepping on my own toes up here. Like, we all have something. And I challenge us all to step it up a notch. I challenge myself to step it up a notch and to, to, to do something that glorifies God 
with our lives and makes us a better witness for him. Anyway, back to Abner. Abner has switched sides, and it is about to catch up with him. His past is about to catch up with him. Um, If you remember, there was a civil war basically going on. He was on the wrong side. And back in chapter 2, which we went over a couple weeks ago, back in chapter 2, he killed a guy named Osiel. And Osiel was Joab's brother, and Joab is the chief commander of David's army. I know this is a lot of people to keep up with, but bear with me. I want us to look at 2 Samuel 2, verse 21. It says, Osiel would not stop chasing him. Again, Abner warned Osiel, stop chasing me. Why should I strike you down? How could I look your brother Joab in the face? But Osiel refused to give up the pursuit. So Abner thrust the butt of his spear into Osiel's stomach, and the spear came out through his back. He fell there and died on the spot, and every man stopped when he came to the place where Osiel had fallen and died. So you see, Abner didn't want to kill Osiel. Osiel wouldn't quit chasing him. And so he ended up killing him, but it was really in self-defense. It was really in self-defense. And, and it, but Joab, Osiel's brother, is very mad. He's very mad, and he goes after Abner, and Abner knows that Joab's after him because he gets a bunch of Benjamites around him to protect him that night. And so Joab didn't get to him, but he has it in his heart, he has it on his mind to avenge the death of his brother. Because according to the law of Moses, God provided that if someone intentionally killed someone else, then the nearest male relative in their family was to go and find the murderer and kill them themselves. They were called the avenger of blood. And that's explained in Numbers 35, 19, if you want to look at that further. But they're called the avenger of blood. It was how God provided for um, murderers to be taken care of in the Old Testament. However, it did not include unintentional death. It did not include accidents. It did not include self-defense. So, for example, if Tony back here, he has a a, a tree-cutting business. If Tony cuts down a tree and it falls on Robert and kills him, well, that's an accident, right? But Robert's family might not think that. Robert's family might still be mad about it. They might think, well, you know, he could have prevented it. He was careless. And so they may want to go after him and and avenge his death, but really they couldn't because it was self-defense. So what would happen would be that Tony would go to a city of refuge, a city of refuge, which was was, um, God's plan to protect people who killed someone else accidentally. And so there were six cities of refuge, and what would happen is the person who needed refuge would go to that city, and they would plead their case, and if their case were found out to be true, then they would be protected in that city. And so they, the family could not get to them, and they could, not, um, they could not hurt them. And so they would be completely protected, and Hebron was one of those towns. Hebron is where we're at in our study right now. Hebron is where David is. This is where all of this is taking place right now, in Hebron, a city of refuge. And so Abner, he should have gone to Hebron and said, hey, you know, I 
killed someone in self-defense. I need your protection. And they would have tried his case. They would have decided that it was true. He needed protection. And they would have protected him. But he didn't do that. He just went about his business as if nothing happened. And he went to Hebron to talk to David, but not to ask for refuge. Joab was not there when this happened. And so when he gets back, he confronts David. And he, he's ticked that David's been talking on good terms with, with this guy. And so he, he's like, David, why are you talking to Abner? You know he killed my brother. You know he's a bad guy. You know he's just tricking you. You know that he can't be trusted. He's just spying on you. He's just manipulating you. And then, unbeknownst to David, and this is what happens in the rest of the chapter. I'm just going to summarize, summarize it for you. Unbeknownst to David, um, Joab sends these men to go and get Abner and bring him back to Hebron. And then Joab kills him, stabs him in the stomach, and kills him. Now, there's two problems with this. First of all, when Abner killed Osiel, it was out of self-defense. And so his death could not be avenged. And second of all, Abner was in control of everything. He was like running the kingdom. Everybody was following him. They weren't following David. They were following him. And so David's got to do some damage control because his guy just went and killed the guy that everybody's following. So he's got to do some damage control. So he, he makes sure that everybody knows that he had nothing to do with it. And he, he tells them, you know, it was all on Joab. I had no idea what was going on. You know, this is wrong. Uh, he puts a curse on Joab and his family. And then he makes Joab and these other guys tear their clothes in mourning and cry very loudly and lead the funeral procession. Then he gives a eulogy and he tells about how, how Abner, you know, was, he was an innocent man. He was killed by evil and he cries very loudly and he refuses to eat. Very dramatic. And, uh, but he's got to do damage control, right? But it, tends to, it seems to work because the people are pleased with how he has handled this. They're pleased with how David has handled this. And, and, um, and so that's a good thing, except that he really didn't do what he should have done. He should have killed Joab. He should have put Joab to death. A, a commander in his army went rogue and killed an innocent man. He should have killed him. He should have, at the very least, had him removed from his position. But he didn't do that either. Because Joab was a, a good commander. Joab did his job well. And David cared for him. Didn't want to let him go. And so he didn't see that he was punished. And he regretted that for the rest of his life. He regretted that. And we know that because uh, his final instructions to Solomon over in 1 Kings 2 says, And there is something else. You know what Joab, son of Zeruah, did to me when he murdered my two army commanders, Abner, son of Ner, and Amasa, son of Jether. He pretended that it was an act of war, but it was, a, it was done in a time of peace staining his belt and sandals with innocent blood. Do with him what you think best, but don't let him grow old and go to his grave in peace. So he wanted Solomon to do what he didn't do, what he regretted not doing all of his life. And again here we see that David was a man after God's own heart, but he was not perfect. He was not perfect. And there are a lot of things in David's life that are a type and a foreshadowing of Jesus. There are a lot of things in David's life that are similar, that, are, that parallel, that, that point us to Jesus. And David was great, 
but Jesus was greater. In the Old Testament, there's a lot of things that, that foreshadow and parallel Jesus. But whatever that example was, Jesus is greater than that. And we see that in the cities of refuge. The, the city of refuge was a type of foreshadowing of Jesus. It was a place where people could go and they could seek safety. And they could seek salvation. And they could seek refuge. And we see in Numbers 35:15 it says, These six towns will be a place of refuge for Israelites and for foreigners residing among them, so that anyone who has killed another accidentally can flee there. And so we see here that it says that it's for Israelites and for foreigners. So it wasn't just for Jews. It wasn't just for Israelites. It was for anyone. Just like Jesus, the salvation of Jesus is for anyone, for any nation, any tribe, any tongue. Jews and Gentiles alike, Baptists and Muslims alike, if they run to him, if they seek him for salvation, they will be saved. And then also notice that it says, anyone who has killed another accidentally. The city of refuge was for innocent people. But Jesus is greater. Jesus' salvation is for the guilty. For all of sin and come short of the glory of God. And I want you to look at this as well. This is the six cities of refuge all around Israel. And notice that they're just strategically placed all around Israel so that no matter where a person was, they had easy access to one of these cities. They could get there very quickly. The same with Jesus. No matter where you are, no matter how far from him you think you've gone, he's just a call away. There's easy access to Jesus. You can just call on him and the salvation is yours. God can save you. God can save you now. You don't have to clean up your act or get it all together. He can save you now. It's that easy. It's that easy. And that verse says that they were to flee there, to flee to the city of refuge because at any moment, the avenger could come and take their life and it would be too late. See, someday it will be too late. Jesus is our city of refuge. We need to run to him. To run to him. No matter where you are today, no matter what you've done, run to him and he will give you refuge. Salvation is in him. You're never too far gone, ever, ever. His blood was shed for you. And all you have to do is decide to flee to him and to seek refuge in him. And so I want to give you that opportunity this morning because if you have never accepted Jesus Christ as your personal savior, if you have never ran to him for refuge, or maybe you have. Maybe you surrendered your life to him a long time ago, but you turned around and went in a whole different direction. Not that you lost your salvation, but that you lost your way. And you need to return to him. If that's you this morning, then with every head bowed and every eye closed, I just want you to say this simple prayer with me. Just repeat after me. 
Jesus, I give you my life. Thank you for dying on that cross for me. For paying the price for my sins. Today, I turn from those sins. And I choose to follow you. Thank you for being my place of refuge. In your precious name, I am saved.